So we are back with our first recorded episode of Demand Gen U in 2023. And we looked at some podcast analytics from last year, crazy concept. And we realized that one of our most popular episodes for all of last year, I think it may have been the most popular episode, was talking about what good demand gen was going to look like in 2022. So some has changed since then, some hasn't changed. And I think what we're going to talk through in this episode is what we think that good demand gen is going to look like in 2023. Demand Gen U is officially in session. Let's do it. All right, so Jason, I'm going to go completely off script here. What's going on with the hair? This is the first time I've seen it like this. Uh, it's it's called experimentation. Uh, and oh, you read you read the outline. We're we yeah we're good at experimenting with ads, and so now I'm experimenting with the hair. No, it's it's just out of control again. It's just, you know, four months since my last haircut. I get, and I should call because it takes a month to get in, right? So like, so I- Where are so, you going that it I'm takes a month my to get in? Though. I know. I, it, it, she's, oh, okay. Yeah, so I probably should switch. But and my wife was like, you need to find like a man with long hair that will do, she's like, I don't know if like these women doing your hair long, I don't know if they know what to do. I'm like, I don't know. But so yeah, it's I'm just in the middle of stuff and just trying to see what- not trying to be like, uh, get as close to Sideshow Bob as possible without actually going full Sideshow Bob. So I forget which episode that it was on, but Heather, if you listen to the, this episode, please do. I may even have Jason send you this once we release it. But there was a story where I think Heather was listening to podcasts that she actually enjoys in the kitchen or doing something. And then she ran out of whatever episode she was listening to. And then this came on automatically and she didn't even realize that she was listening to you and I talking B2B marketing, but she was like, oh, this is kind of cool. I have no idea what they're talking about. But yeah, she was entertained. And then she realized like, I have no idea what they're talking about, but I'm, very, I'm pretty entertained though. I was like, oh, that's good. That's good. I like that. So do you guys sound, sound like you know what you're doing? I'm like, cool. That's what we're going for, I guess. 50 some odd episodes in now. That's right. This is 52. So oh, let's that's a year. Get, okay, that's the year's worth. Yeah, we've been doing it for a year, which is crazy. So let's get into it. So this was one of my favorite episodes that we recorded last year, not just because it, the data backed it up, but I think it forced you and I to think a little bit on some of the things that we just didn't like ourselves about being marketed to when it came to demand generation. And I think what we wanted to see more of in 2022. I did re-listen to the episode. We were oh, kind of close on some things. Some things I think are still in the outline here that we'll talk through, but I am pretty excited to to revisit the same topic because a lot has changed in the world of demand gen. Oh man. Yeah. Well, I'm sure when we recorded this last year, it was like, it was Lambo than money bags, right? <laughs> it's like every growth at all costs or like anything. You know what? Next year, anything, anything you do with what, for good Japan, sponsor Dreamforce, bring the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah, there's lots yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it'll be a little different. I think you'll see some like some more efficiency plays probably this year. Is my guess. So let's talk about that for a little bit because I think you know, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's talking with metadata customers or other B two B marketers in general, everyone is talking about this notion of doing more with less in 2023. So. If you agree with that, what does that mean to you? And how do you think demand gen marketers can do more with less in this year? Yeah, I partly agree and partly don't agree. I just hate the whole notion of just do more with less. You know, I just hate that whole way. I didn't ask if you liked it because I hate it. But it's... <laughs> yeah, um, but I think 
that it's just like efficiency was just something that we got to overlook for a couple of years because it wasn't a priority, you know, and it might have been a priority for some people still, which is kudos to you. Like, great. You're considering like worst case scenarios and stuff. But when you look at what's around you and you still have finite resources, right? So even if you're growing high, if you're like high growth at all costs, um, you still have limited resources. And so you still have to prioritize things. And when you're meeting your goals every quarter, you're spending your money, you're not overspending, you're meeting goals, then there's really no reason to put resources against getting more efficient or trying to figure out like, well, where are we spending money? It's not working. Well, everything's working. You know, like you're meeting your goals and you're spending your money. So what else do you want? And so you put those resources you have on new things to do because you need more things to try because you've got this money and you're trying to spend it. So that's how I think about it. Like, this wasn't like a, oh shit, everyone else, all of us call their pants down right now. No, that's not it at all. It's like, no, we were just doing what the market needed or brought us at that time. And we we're capitalizing on that. And now it's changed. And now we got to figure out how to capitalize on something different. And now it's efficiencies. But I like it now because sure, over those last couple of years, we all got a little bit bloated. So we could all use probably some attention towards efficiency and start to look at the things that aren't working because we are wasting money. We were wasting money before, but it didn't matter because we were spending our budget and meeting or beating our goals. And so, yeah. So before we get into more of that, one question that's not in here is you talk to a ton of marketing leaders, whether they're VPs of marketing or CMOs. What you just said how does that compare to what you are talking about in those conversations? Like, are you all kind of in the same boat right now? Or are you looking for a little guidance from each other? What does that look like? Yeah, most most everybody's in the same boat. Most everybody I talk to is like, yep, uh, budgets got cut, trying to find efficiencies. Goals are higher than the budget allows us to hit. A lot of people are just talking about how it's just hard to forecast anything right now because um, the historicals that we were using for the last two years changed. but they didn't change and stay. They just keep changing. Right? So it's like, um, and they're changing towards the negative. And so it's just hard to, I was just talking to our own leadership team here about this recently. It was like, hey, last quarter, we thought we were planning for literally worst case scenario. We're like, is this worst case scenario? And everyone's like, yes. And then went below that. You know, it was like, all right, well, that wasn't the worst case scenario then because none of us predicted that. And so that's a little bit of the same world. And then some people I meet with, they're cash bagged in, in Lambos right now still. And I'm just like, what? How is that possible give me right some. now? Yeah, there's some. Uh, what'd you say? I said, give me some. Yeah. 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 I'm like, um, there's, and, and there's like, there's been a site, like a cybersecurity company I talked to that was in one of the, like in this space, there was trying to remember, I don't remember like all of them, but I was just like, most of them seem like new money though. You know what I mean? A lot of them seem just like recent series A still, you know, so they just got some funding and they need to spend it. But yeah, man, things are changing. Just this morning, I was reading about like the Salesforce and the Tableau layoffs and like Amazon. That's all here by me. And so, like, yeah, it's still happening. Yeah, I think it was sometime maybe in November-ish. Don't quote me on that. But Salesforce came out and said they weren't going to forecast publicly any anymore because they didn't know how to forecast. And that was crazy. You know, not to shit on ourselves, but I was so locked in my own head of, wow, this is a metadata thing. Yeah, I hear other companies are struggling, but we got to figure this out. I'm sorry, but if Benioff and his team can't figure it out, like they are the cloud example of software companies. So that was a big warning sign to me that, hey, if this is what they're struggling with, then everyone else is in the same boat too. 
oh, and who knows how many data scientists they have that they can apply to that problem and still try and get a forecast. And they're like, nope, we have the best, smartest resources in the world. And no, we can't do it either. So yeah, I should give everybody a little bit of sigh of relief. Salesforce can't forecast their own stuff with that much volume. Can anybody really like right now selling B2B SaaS? Yeah, you just do the best you can. And then it's just, it's more about being agile now because things are changing so rapidly. If you can't be agile, then you will get lost and you'll get left behind. So let's get into it. I think there are, without counting, probably 10 or 12 different things that we expect to see in demand gen in 2023. In the outline, we went through and bolded the ones that we wanted to cover. We'll get through as many of these as we can, but we probably could do an episode, if we're being honest, I think, on each one of these. So maybe that helps me with the new episodes that we'll, <laughs> we'll start to record. But first things first, let's talk about conversion rate optimization. And I think for so long, demand gen marketers, ourselves included, were so, you know, focused on getting traffic to the site and they experimented so much you know if you were good at what you were doing in those particular channels and you know you were testing and learning and whatnot but then you just drove people to the site and then you hope that they converted and i think with ad budgets being cut significantly you can't take that same approach in 2023 so why don't you respond back to that first and i'll give you my own take too the beauty of conversion rate optimization is a, if you haven't done it yet, there's huge upside to it. Because if you're always doing it, then you're just, you know, you might be able to eat point something for like a tenth of a percent out of it. But if you really haven't focused on it, then you know there's probably some greenfield in there and you're going to be able to help yourself, really. And, and speaking of that, the analysis that we did internally for ourselves, if we change our close rate by one every 1% we increase the close rate in a normal quarter for us that's like 2 million dollars of pipeline less that we have to build just 1% change in that conversion in that close rate um and you have several steps in that that you can affect the conversion rate in and so if you add these steps up you usually get to you're breaking free from some things and you're changing the game for yourself too and so yeah we're definitely going to be focusing on that so one thing that I'll add first is just this notion of friction and trying to remove friction in your book a demo process on the website, your sales process, whatever it may be. And I think one of the things I'll give a shout out to Qualified, but one of the things that we're working on through Qualified Conversations, their chat product, and then rolling out Qualified Meetings, the new product that's almost like a Chili Piper scheduling I forget the product name, like competitor is just trying to make it easier for people to get in touch with your sales team, qualify themselves, disqualify themselves, get on their calendar. And for us, like looking through the steps of what does each step in that process look like? What are the unnecessary steps? How can you make that run smoother, more efficiently, less friction? Like that's immediately where we're jumping to to start. And then we'll back out of that you know, and move further up the funnel. But I think for me personally, I'm really, really excited about that because I hadn't looked at our step-to-step -step book a demo process in quite some time. And what you may have thought was the right process or enough steps three months ago or six months ago, you can always simplify it. And I think we're just trying to remove friction and make it easier on people trying to get in touch with us. 
Yeah. I mean, another thing we just realized this week, Brittany and I, she's like, I know our lead follow-up process. She's like, I know exactly what happens through this. And we uncovered a part that she was like, I didn't know about this. And, you know, and like, and she designed, she pretty much designed the process too. But she's like, I didn't know this was happening. You know, and uh, if she doesn't know, she's like, then other people probably don't know either or what to do when this happens. And so we were talking about this. We were like, I bet we're dropping leads. I'm sure that are coming in and they're going one of two ways and somebody doesn't know like this status and then this status is supposed to push them over. It's just like, you can overcomplicate it and then screw yourself as well. But yeah, we're definitely gonna be looking at those and going through, I, I had her pull a meeting together with, just get a representative from each step of this process and pull them together in a meeting room and just like almost like a paper prototyping process. Just like, okay, a lead comes in from here. What happens? Simple. Yes. And map that out and then see where there's confusion and where we might be like dropping things off and then let's fix it. Because we know that's happening and we know sometimes it takes days for us from a demo request to get somebody on the phone. So all of that is just like, you're spending all this money already. You're spending the same amount of money in ads, for example. And you're just leaving people on the table or they're just going to like fall out of the process because you're not doing things right. And that's about efficiencies. That's inefficient. <laughs> it's a perfect example. So one other thing that I want to put you on the spot for is I'll speak for myself, but I think at previous companies, I was intimidated by conversion rate optimization, mostly because I didn't have the resources or the large team to do it. And knowing that you come from a very big time and strong ops background. What would be some advice that you would share for people who, you know, haven't really dipped their toes in the CRO waters in 2023 and know that they need to do it, but don't know where and how to get started? Yeah, best piece of advice I can give is don't expect or try to make the data perfect. The, de- the data doesn't need to be perfect for you to get massive insights. And so I that, what I see that's what I got wrong whenever I tried to do this before. It's waste time doing that. So, all right, keep yeah. going. And and I understand why, because you're like, hey, if too much of this data is not accurate, then it's going to put me in the wrong direction. So you do have to have a good sniff test, like, okay, do I have enough? And you have to kind of know, have at least a perspective of, is it the right amount and accurate enough for me to get the insight that I need to make a change? And oftentimes, it's 10x less the amount of time that you need to put into it than a lot of people do to try and make the data perfect that gives them maybe 1% more accuracy. So I'd say don't paralyze yourself if your data is a little bit dirty or even a decent dirty, decent amount of dirty. Don't let that stop you from getting started and trying to get insights from it because a, a lot of times you can correct some of that data. So that would be the first one. Of both. I was just laughing because I thought you were going to say decent dirtiness or really bad dirtiness. And uh, yeah. it was just... We a, have scales of dirty yeah. here. Yeah. Yes. There's, yes. There's the dirty scale. <laughs> That's the first one. And then um, I'd say, well, and then start... Start broad and then narrow down. So where I'm having Mazda start right now is just give me the totals, just the total website visits, total people that started the book of demo process, total people that went through it, because that helps you hone the muscle of like, is the data good? Start really broad. The data is usually better. And as you get, as you niche down and try and get the data, you know, lower, lower, so you get different types of insights, that's usually where the data gets a little dirty. You have less volume in there. So, so a little bit of inaccuracy does cause more, you know, challenge, but. Um, so yeah, don't be paralyzed and just get started with what you have. Love that. All right. I'm going to throw you a bone here. We're going to go through the prediction that you are really the theme that you added to the outline. So enabling word of mouth from customers and prospects, because I think this is really cool. Yeah. 
So if we really think about the points in our buying cycle that really have the most impact on our decisions, for me and for a lot of the people that I talk to, it's talking to a peer who uses the solution, finding reviews about it from people like me. It's, it, it's getting that word of mouth. It's getting that real world feedback on what it's like to use that tool. Because we all know like our websites are going to make everything look as just beautiful as possible, but everybody has unique scenarios that may or may not work for your solution. I mean, let's be honest. If your solution was as good as the website made it sound like, you'd be a billionaire right now, right? Because everybody would buy it. Nobody would question it. So it's important for people to get, oh, okay, I see. That's, you know, I'm like you. We think, we think similarly about things and you bought this and, oh, you're having success with it. Exactly how are you having success with it? Oh, I don't do that. So maybe I won't have success with that that way. Um, and I like to think about word of mouth, both to help drive people closer and then also away from us. Is driving people closer, great. If you find somebody that you know that's using the platform and they are having success and you can see yourself having that kind of success, cool. But if you talk to somebody and they're like, you know, we're still using it. These are the good things, but these aren't the great things. And you're like, well, I wanted to do these things that aren't great. Okay, now I've steered myself away because otherwise you could sell yourself through that and not even through a very honest sales process and everything and not understand that this niche thing you're trying to do can't really be done that well. And then you're going to churn. And for us, GRR, NRR is our number one metric. And so we just can't have that. So I love it. And there are new tools and things coming to fruition that will help with this. And one of them we're looking at called Noble. Don't try and find their website. They don't have one yet. Um, aims to help organically connect prospects and existing users through their LinkedIn connections. So this tool will know all of our customers, for example, metadata customers. And if a prospect signs up for Noble, Noble will connect them with their peers on LinkedIn that could potentially be users of the platform and just have them give them like a chance to have very organic conversations about what it's like to use it. Because most of us, the sales rep is giving us their pocket reference and they're paying them $200, a $200 gift card to do that reference call. Like, so of course they're going to just promote the crap out of it. You think it's the best thing under the sun. Um, so these more natural word of well, mouth. And things, so let's talk about that for a second. When, whenever I've done this before, whenever you are given the referral by the company who's trying to sell you their software, are they ever going to give you a bad referral? Like, no, you know what they're going to say. Like, it's their best, happiest customer. So I think on the theme of word of mouth, I would always try to back channel through people that I knew that the company didn't know about that I was asking for their opinion on because you want that unbiased feedback. And I think you mentioned Noble. That's a huge step in that direction. And you look at other things that we've done. We've added customers to our Demand community Slack channel and let those conversations be in the public. That was intentional. Yep. We just did that webinar recently with two of our customers. Did they have the seed questions? Yeah. Did I know what they were going to say? Absolutely not. And the best marketing comes from that because it's not coming from you. It's coming from people that aren't biased at the end of the day. Yeah, 100%. If there were more, I mean, and what's nice about this is this is organic stuff. So this isn't often something you can just hack your way into. I can't pay more for it. 
this has to come from very happy customers and so happy that they would actually be willing to give a little of their time to recommend it to somebody else. Uh, and if you try and manufacture that too, it comes off as dis disingenuous. Dis yeah, disingenuous. I think that's the right word. Using um, some big Scrabble words that I'm trying to. <laughs> um, oh, there's a filler word. Damn it. Does it take out damn it too? <laughs> no, we are. We already have the explicit rating in, in Spotify and Apple <laughs> Podcasts. Right. So we're good. Uh, so anyway, I think, I think we'll see, we might even see some, so community, I think is a really clear way of helping to foster this, especially if you've got a community that's not just your customers, obviously, C customers and prospects in the same community, a conversation will just organically happen. And then tools like Noble, I think you're going to, I think we're going to just see more of this kind of stuff and things we don't even know right now, how people could potentially help activate this kind of word of mouth. We don't even know right now. We might see some interesting things this year. So I think that's a cool, I think that's a cool one. It's something I'm really interested in. Yeah. And I think one last interesting example, only because I saw it the other day in our demand community, there are people who are straight up asking about our direct competitors that they're evaluating that software and not mentioning metadata. And we let those yeah. posts live there. We don't go in and filter them. This isn't North Korea. <laughs> this is people want unbiased answers to their questions. We're creating an environment that lets people get those answers and not preventing them from getting that information because they will find it somewhere or another. Yeah, yeah. And even as far as one of the things we're th thinking about in the community is having vendors come in and doing like, what are we calling it? Normalized demos, basically. So where they don't get to just do their normal demo. We're, we're going to need to work on that name, but keep going. Yeah. Yeah. That's the literal name. We'll have a better marketing name for it. Um, but if you just imagine this, imagine if you're a marketer, you don't want to take all these demos because you know you're just getting this demo. And you know you're going to hear 90% of it's going to be like, oh, all rainbows and butterflies. But imagine if you could get on a demo and like three vendors in the same space had 15 minutes and it was like a bake-off kind of and they, only, they could only show specific things and talk about very specific things and then you could ask questions. So even driving more transparency into this process as well and just kind of, trying to help marketers see through, I think, some of the noise. And that's where the mouth can help with that. But there might be some other things, too, that just make the buying process more transparent. All right. It's almost as if you read the podcast outline, because that's the next theme that we're going to talk about. Oh, no. So giving buyers complete visibility into your product before they even have to talk to sales. So I think that's one thing that we're going to try out. I think there are other things that we're doing by way of using Novatic on our website, you'll start to see a whole lot more of that. But I think what we really want to do to your point earlier is show them what our product looks like, let them guide themselves through it at their own pace. Don't force them to watch a video that was a, is a good step, but it's not the holy grail of getting people into your product. And then even offer a PLG option. And that's something that a lot of companies are going to be dabbling their toes into because people want to see the product. I think now more than anything in 2023, there's so much more scrutiny under every single expense as a marketing team that they want to know that they're making the right decision, ideally before they sign a contract and beg their CFO for money. Yeah. And the reality is there's always going to be tools that are very hard or near impossible to PLG or to try before you buy. So there will always be some of those. But I think there's way more that 
can be that. They're just, I don't want to say lazy, but it's hard, right? It's hard to take a product that you're just got people paying for it and to take that and to turn it into something that they can try. It requires a lot more onboarding consideration in the UI and the UX because in a demo, you're showing people, you've got in a demo, you have the most professional user of your platform showing people how to use it. So of course, they're going to fly through it. They're going to make it look like it's super simple to use and just, you know, anybody can get it. And you're looking at it and you're like, yeah, okay, I think, yeah, I can kind of see that. When you have people try it themselves and it's the, their first time into it, your product has to be so much more buttoned up. And so I think that's where products probably say, ah, I can't quite get it there. So I'm not going to do it that way. But again, especially in an environment like now where money is more scrutinized, people are going to, like you said, people are going to want to try it before they actually commit to buying it. And they want to be able to prove it some way that it's going to have an impact. They don't want to get fired because they made a bad decision on MarTech spend. So yeah, so we're angling in that direction as much as we possibly can. You're going to see some stuff coming from us here in the next couple, between one and 17 months. Sounds like the... <laughs> the window that Comcast gives me when they're going to come fix my cable box. Nice. Yeah. But I think to go back to the example that you laid out, the big piece and arguably the biggest piece in that equation that you're removing is your company, whether it's the sales engineer, whether it's the AE, whether it's your CSM, the implementation consultant, whoever it is, they are always there to guide you to make sure that you know what you are doing and you know how to do it. And they're handholding you. And I think when companies are trying to make this jump and PLD is so new that most companies have never done it before and really don't know what they're doing, it's a risk because now you're removing your company from that equation and you're making sure that we're trying to, the person who's using the software has everything that they need. Like they are guiding themselves. Like you're not handholding anymore. And it's scary. A lot of companies don't want to make that jump. Yeah. Yeah, it's scary. And I think, it, like you said, Probably a lot don't do it out of fear, fear of what's going to happen, fear of whatever it might be. They're not going to have a good experience and they're never going to consider us again or um, and all those are real fears. But my thinking on that one is you don't really know until you get it out there and try it. You can do all kinds of testing and asking questions, but the sooner you just get something out there and try it, then you'll, that's the best feedback you'll get. If people actually using it, hopefully you do a good enough job. They don't leave a bad taste in their mouth. So. Speaking of the sales cycle, let's talk about one of the other big things that I think we are starting to do ourselves. And then I think companies or really marketing teams will definitely have to do in 2023, which is the novel concept, running campaigns that target the entire buying committee, not mm -hmm. just the decision maker at the end of the day or the power user. I think when, I forget if it was a Jason Lemkin talk or I think it may have been from Devin Reed and Kyle Coleman over at Clary, but they were talking about how you typically sell into, in this example, a sales leader is going to be different than how you position and message what you do and how you can help that particular company to your CFO or to, if it's a smaller company, to the CEO. Like the value prop and the messaging truly needs to change. And you can't just use this one size fits all message across every single person at that company. So I'm intrigued by that because truthfully, we got to figure out what we're going to say to all of those different people from a product marketing perspective. So we've got plenty of homework to do, but it forces us to think a little bit more and be more intentional with our messaging. Yeah, and a lot of this will depend on 
what your ASP is. The higher your ASP, the more people that will be involved in that purchase decision. And so as you scale up in price, your marketing should probably scale out as well to those people who are going to help make those decisions or at the very least on their radar. And this is where brand marketing comes in. Because even if like a CEO or CFO sees your advertising a couple times and it has to grab them, it can't just be one of these just scroll through. It's got to like, there's got to be some like grab there. That's, that can be enough to help you win over a competitor. Literally, that can be, this is what happens. Like the marketer brings it in and the CEO or the CFO is like, oh yeah, I've heard of those guys before. And they just, and they might even say it out loud, but that's what they're thinking. They don't even know where or how. But just the fact that they think they know you is almost can be enough sometimes. And so we're going to experiment with that both organically and paid. Like organically, one of the things that we're doing is we run LinkedIn automation that connects us with marketers at our target accounts. Well, it's not just me and Mark doing it. Now we have Gil doing it. Gil, but Gil's connecting himself to the CEOs of, and the CFOs of our target accounts. And if we can ever get Jim, our CFO, to get on LinkedIn, we might have him do some of this as well and connect. And then once they're connected... Well, I, hold on. Where do CFOs hang out? I, I don't even know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if bank. I want to know, but yeah. All right. Keep going. Get it. I'll the bank. Um, when, and so then when we start to post and we're going to have more of a themed-based approach to some of our organic posts, Gil will talk about it from a CEO's perspective. I'll talk about it from a marketing leader's perspective. You'll talk about it from a, you know, practitioner all the way up through marketing leader's perspective. And that's more relevant to the people that are, oh, okay, I see that now. I see, oh, I see that for this, for my role. I see how that can be beneficial. So yeah, we'll, we'll, it should help, but there's also additional expense that comes with it too, right? So it's like one of those things where, especially if you're using paid ads, you're going to have a little bit more expense. So you want to make sure you're seeing like good returns from it. But I think this is definitely a way forward. Yeah. And I think it ties with one of the things that I believe was on the episode that we did last year. If it's not on that episode, it was on another episode, but it's this whole notion of people buying from people at the end of the day. And, you know, in the B2B world, it still rings just as true. And I think by taking that approach that you mentioned and what we've been doing, people, you know, feel like they know you, they know me, they know other people at Metadata. There were times where I forget, actually, I know who it is and I know the company, but I'm not going to out them because it was hilarious. They thought either you or I were going to be on the first sales call. They're like, where's Mark and Jason? And yeah. it's like, one, we're, we can't be on every sales call, but two, that's how you know it's working because then you've got real feedback where the buyers and the influencers at those companies, they feel like they already know other people at the company without ever having talked to that person before. And the best way to do that is just being real on LinkedIn with content and, and building those long-term relationships. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's still a lot about relationships, especially again, higher ASP. We're not really talking about these things. You can just transact online and never talk to a human being. But higher ASP, um, I was actually talking to Rahul, who you know, you know, the guy over at Noble. Yep. And he's got his day job. Um, he sells medical insurance stuff that, the sales cycle is three years long, three, three year long sales cycle. So I was asking, I was like, cause I had forgotten this. I said, so how's your sales going? He's like, oh, great. Cause he's like, these are deals closing now that I've been working on for three years. And he's like, you know, they don't, 
they don't really change because of recession. These are big insurance companies and things like that. And so as that, and he was just like relationships. He's like, it's just all about relationships. He's like, these people call me on my days off. You know, we've got true relationships. And that's really where these three-year deal come from. You can't really do a three-year deal without a relationship. And, but it doesn't have to be a three-year deal. But you can be a three-month sales cycle. But like you mentioned, people buy from people they trust. And I, I definitely don't buy from people that I don't trust, you know? And so I love that one because it's, I just can't, and you can't overstate it. You can't. And that's why even our sales reps, they talk about, do you have a text-based relationship with this person? That's an actual thing that they talk about. Once you get to that text-based relationship. So this is totally unplanned. Talk about this because I want to get your take on how you feel about this because I have my own thoughts. Oh, I, I don't like it. I <laughs> fucking hate it. No. Yeah. Keep going. That's what they're going for. Now, I will, I will. Let me caveat that. If it's unnatural, I don't like it. But if there is a, if, if I am somehow feel connected to that sales rep and there's an, and I'm open to it, then I'm okay with it, you know? But again, it's that, how did they handle it? I know several of our sales reps where I'd be like, yes, I'd love that because like, KY, I know I could, I could get so, a laugh from him. So that is the reason why I've hated it before whenever I've been on the receiving end of it is because the, the rep who texted me, I did not have that relationship yeah. or that feeling. It's already cold? It was like it was like. There? No, it was like the feeling. Well, I guess it kind of was, but it was like, how did you get my, I mean, I didn't say this in the text, although I wanted to. It was like, how did you get my cell phone number? Like, yeah, why, are, right. like why are you texting me? Like, what? But if you have, and I think we'll use KY as the example, and I'm not going to tell him that we mentioned this here. We'll see if he actually listens because what does salespeople do all day? Um, it's unique about his, the way that he sells. And I think he plays the relationship game in that, that cycle the sales cycle and it's easier for her or sorry for him to put himself in those positions where texting feels natural because yeah. of how he sells if you're not selling like that if it's more transactional or like you're not trying to get to know the person then it feels weird as hell when it's like who's the 224 area code texting me that masked their number to make it look like they were in my 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 <laughs> zip code like what like yeah. building <laughs> yeah like are you behind me right now yeah, yeah. i'm I don't answer my phone anymore because honestly, 100% of the time I answer it when I don't know the number is a sales call. I've had my number for 22 years, literally, and it's associated with me and everything. And, and it's just out there apparently. And so I don't answer. I don't answer it anymore. And I've tried. This is the tactic I hate. And I know we're on a complete tangent. Sales reps that call twice in a row. Because, because so here's the deal. I have deals with people like, hey, if it's an emergency and I don't answer, call me right back. Because sometimes one of my kids uses somebody else's phone, right? And so I kind of like, I have a deal. Like, if I don't answer, call right back and I will answer it. So I did this like two weeks ago. This happened to me. Somebody got me on it. Local number, call, we called back. I answered it. They said three words. I immediately hung up. I didn't, you know, I just hung up on them. And I'm sorry, sales reps for that, but I will hang up on you. Because I don't want to just, I don't want to dance around it. I don't want you to have to say your spiel and me be like, no, but I just all just hang up on you. But consider that a nice gesture. <laughs> so I'm going to sound like, I'm going to sound like a jackass. Uh, I'm going to take you one step further. I don't think I told you this. I have the iPhone setting that ignores every single call and sends it straight to voicemail. If it's not my mom, my dad, my sister, you, or uh, Courtney. Like, yeah, so like that. Yeah. you yeah. Andy, you literally cannot get a hold of me because i was so fed up with people calling me 
on my cell phone about this. So we could talk about this for hours, but I think long and short is be very, very careful, especially when you're selling to marketers with cell phone numbers, whether it be calling or texting and think twice about whether or not you have that relationship before you abuse it, because it is so off-putting if you do not have that relationship in place that if I was neck and neck between, let's say, metadata and uh, another competitor at another company, and someone from metadata did that, that might move them behind the other competitor that I was evaluating at the time for being straight up. Yeah. And honestly, all too often, there's when people are evaluating software, there's not enough time or enough differences in the software for them to really be able to tell like A versus B versus C. In their mind, it'll all work the same way for me. And so that's where the relationship really does make a difference because people will buy off a relationship. And there's so many more tools, as we know nowadays, so many more competitive tools that you are going to run into the times where, yeah, we're at parity on features and functionality. What am I going to compete on? Well, relationship will win for sure. All right, let's do one more or else we're just going to keep talking and sounding like grouches right now. Complaining. Let's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is awesome because this is something that I think we are trying to figure out ourselves right now by way of our demand event. But it's this just whole notion of companies returning to doing in-person events. Now, they're not going to look for the most part, or I would almost predict that they're not going to at all. They're not going to look like the trade shows of 2022 and before where massive trade shows uh, in oh, even before 2020, like the Vegas setups, the New Orleans setups when Tableau spent an outrageous amount of money, I think that you said at the Superdome or whatever it was like, it's not going to be the same large scale event. What the new format is going to look like. I don't think anyone really knows just yet, but I think what we are hearing and seeing within our own community and from people that attended demand last year, like there is that desire to meet up again in real life because people are on virtual event overload. They've been at it for three years now. They want to meet people. They want to network. They want to learn from others. They want to, like, I think the big refocusing, if you will, is this fact that whenever you return to these smaller in-person events, you're trying to facilitate like-minded people meeting each other and learning from each other. Your company is not the most important part of this equation anymore. It's the fact that, hey, metadata is bringing together demand-gen marketers in Austin and all of these demand-gen marketers get to meet each other, know each other, network, learn from each other. Metadata was a company that facilitated that event, but like metadata is not front and center. So I think it's a big difference in how people think about in-person events this year. Yeah, we started, I remember last year, we started to uh, see people trying to figure out what the return would look like, right? So last year we had the COVID restrictions lifted and and there was still, there was like a, a small amount of time between like travel and COVID restrictions being lifted and then fucking recession, you know what I mean? And so there was like two months where, and we were all thinking about, okay, we've got money, everything's high growth and no more restrictions. Let's everybody get together. And I know everyone was talking about in-person events and we were talking about it too for demand. You say, we signed we, a contract. We, yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like hundreds of people at each place. No, we only have a six-person marketing team. No, we can make that happen. Um, and people were getting like, I think, started trying to figure it out. And now we're in this whole other thing, recession. Now people aren't going to have the money to travel. And so I think what it's going to look like, you said, smaller events, but we have to bring it to people. We can't expect, I don't think we can expect people to come to us for them. 
like in the past, maybe small travel. So you might have to do spotty places where people can get to fairly easily and inexpensively. But and then the intimacy, it's no longer. I think it's it's mostly what you're about to say. Yeah, I don't think it's about let's get as many people as we can together and just spit content and just talk, talk at them this entire time. It's what can I learn? What am I going to walk away from this event knowing or being able to do differently? Who do I now know and I can rely on because I met there? And like you said, the companies that provide that kind of experience, that'll leave a mark in somebody's mind. Um, and so, yeah, we're trying to figure that out too. We have demand to plan for this year. I was just looking at the budget. It's like, wow. That's really also though where it falls down. You're like, I can do a virtual event with thousands and thousands and thousands of people for $200,000. Or I can do an in-person event with like 500 people for $600,000, you know, and then you're, you're just left with the decision of like, okay, how do we, and if you've got a CEO like ours who love big numbers, he's like the law of big numbers. <laughs> um, <laughs> Coming to it, coming to him and pitching a 500 person in person versus a 15,000 person virtual event, which knock on wood, that can't happen. But um, I hope Gil's what not. do you think they're going to say? Are they going to say the CEO, at least, I think most leaders are going to be like, no, I want more people. They're going to always air to the more people. But I really hope we can. I hope we are able to do some component in person this year. So that we can at least understand what the difference is. Because we don't know yet. We've never done one in person like that. And we never will know until we can actually, unless we can try it. So we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes with budgets and all that stuff. My my prediction for all of this, and I kind of hope that we do this too with demand and the demand community events. I think you will start to see smaller in-person events with a low production budget so they do not feel like they're overly produced now there's still some branding around the event you know that you'd be at a metadata event but it's not the focus of it anymore and i remember when we were putting together the budget for the two in-person locations for demand last year like we were going to go nuts on the space and it was going to look so fucking cool and it was going to look like nothing people had seen before and like that's awesome i don't think companies are going to do that anymore i think they just want to get people together i think they want to lightly branded. And the focus is bringing people together that want to learn from each other and then getting content out of it. Like the, what Dave Gerhardt used to do outside of some of the events when he was at Drift, like he literally had a microphone plugged into his phone and he was walking around interviewing Andy Raskin. It's like, that's the the rough, authentic content that people want to see. It's so much more believable at the end of the day. Yeah. I kind of chuckle because I was just looking at the in-person budget yesterday, I think with our events team. And there was a, there was a signage line item in there. I and, remember. And the signage is just to tell people where to go. And it was like $15,000 for ten dollars or $10,000. I'm just like, so I got to print, I got to spend ten dollars to $15,000 just for printed signs that are going to be thrown away just to tell people where to go. In this event, I'm just like, oh man, this seems so wasteful. So it'll be, I like the low... I think you're going to see the signage, the signage budget become the budget for these little in-person events. Uh, I'm serious. You're going to have people like, standing out there like, directing. Yeah, yeah like you're going to have everybody that way. Yeah. In a gorilla suit, spinning a monkey like the people in movies and in the middle of an intersection. But no, uh, I think you'll start to see more of those smaller scale events in person 
where there's maybe some food and drink and some light branding, but you don't have to do these overly produced events anymore. I think that's going to be a thing of the past. And it's kind of funny to say this. We've never been trade show booth people ever. Like not once have we talked about having a trade show booth anywhere in 2023. So like that stuff is gone. Yeah, I, that'll be interesting because we were even talking about, well, do you guys want to do booths at your event? No, no. Um, Nobody will go to them. Like, let's do something more interesting, like have them sponsor a happy hour or something different. But yeah, I I think we should just go to some. That's what we need to do. We need to go and just attend some and see what these are, what these look like. Because yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. It's also hard to plan these things with budgets and recessions and stuff because you're making a bet six months plus in advance. You're trying to predict what's going to happen, what's going to be happening around that time. And right now, like we just said in the very beginning of this call, even Salesforce can't predict it. So we could plan this amazing event. You sign all these vendor contracts. Most of them have no out clause at all. And then you come up to it and either new variant, triple demic, snowmageddon, whatever all this thing here, recession, uh, get people to like not go. It's, it's a risky. It's a little bit of risky endeavor. So that's, again, a reason to do smaller events because you're not all in. You're not $100,000, $200,000 committed and you just lose that money if you don't do it. All right. I know we could talk forever. We usually do. This was fun. We'll have to revisit this maybe like six months into the year and see how accurate we are with some of these uh, predictions. I think these are good good good. ones. Well, yeah, I wrote them all. They're all good. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) They were were good. (laughs) And yours was good too. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next week on DGU. Thanks everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Demand Gen U. If you want to hear more, make sure to subscribe to get future episodes. You can also submit a specific topic you want us to talk about by DMing us on LinkedIn. If you like the show or want to share feedback, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep improving and get the word out to other marketers just like you. This podcast is brought to you by Metadata, the first demand generation platform that launches paid campaigns that self-optimize to revenue. If you're looking for a tool that makes it easier for you to build audiences, launch paid campaigns, and experiment at scale, you'll love Metadata. B2B marketers at Zoom, Okta, and ThoughtSpot use Metadata to automate the time-consuming parts of running paid campaigns so they can focus on the things that matter. 